The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. We're looking at what true salvation is this morning. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you are willing to give everything to follow. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to the end of, basically end of the Beatitudes, verse 11. We're going to pray and then we'll get to work. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to be focusing in this morning on just verses 1 and 2. So I just want to reread those first two verses, because this is where it all begins. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we know that it's your, your desire to make us happy. God, you, you see, you, Lord, you love us. And that's mind-boggling thought. And as I just reflect over my own life, God, I know that there is nothing good in me that is, that is even remotely on a level to be compared with how awesome and amazing you are. And yet you still love us. I just thank you for that, God. Lord, I just pray, Father, that as we come to the Beatitudes over the next couple of weeks, as we look at what it means to be happy, to be blessed, Father, I just pray we would find our joy in you. I pray, God, that you would show us what it means to recklessly pursue true, lasting, eternal joy in you. I pray you would just drive that truth home to us today. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How does depression feel? Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever been sad? There are two elements to depression. One is mental pain. The other is physical pain. The mental pain seems unbearable to those who go under it. Time seems to stand still. One 12-year-old girl commented, quote, I just can't go on. Spurgeon, who is said to have suffered from depression, commented, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Others have described it as a veritable howling tempest in the brain or a malignant sadness. My bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Psalm 32.3. One clinician described it this way, profound melancholy, 
day in, day out, night in, night out, an almost arterial bleeding level of agony. It is a pitiless, unrelenting pain that affords no window of hope, no alternative to a grim and brackish existence, and no respite from the cold undercurrents of thought and feeling that dominate the horribly restless nights of despair. Wow, could you be any darker than that? And it's not just that it's a mental pain. I mean, pain, if it serves some sort of a purpose, would be bearable. Mothers willing to go under, undergo the pain of childbirth because they know at the end of that there's a beautiful, amazing baby on the other side. But this is a kind of pain which seems to have no purpose. One individual commented, all I want out of my life is for this pain to have some purpose. It's as though a person feels an excruciating pain that just won't go away, and not only will it not go away, it doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason to it. And then that leads to a physical aching in your body. Abraham Lincoln, having sent thousands of soldiers to their death during the Civil War, made the comment, I am now the most miserable man alive. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth, not one smile. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode that I shall not. But to remain as I currently am is impossible. I must either die or be better. There is no alternative. An aching in your bones, don't even feel like your body could endure it. So there's a mental pain and there's a physical pain. Now last week or two weeks ago before Easter, we kicked off this passage here in Matthew. And we saw that Jesus is capable of healing our physical pain. I want you to look right quick with me, jumping back to Matthew chapter 4. Look here, it says in verse 23, He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And look at this, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And of course, this got so popular, all of Galilee goes rushing up to find him. The truth is, it didn't matter what your spiritual ailment was, it didn't matter if you were depressed or whether you had a physical ailment, whether you had a disease, some sort of sickness, it didn't matter. Jesus could heal you. Now, as we come to Matthew, we've got this kind of beginning statement where Jesus says he can heal you. The scriptures say Jesus can heal you. I want you to flip over with me right quick to the tail end of this section. If you go to Matthew chapter 9, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Flip a couple of pages. We have here a section, Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7 constitute his teaching, which is healing to the heart. Matthew chapter 8 and 9 constitute miracles that he performed in which he brought about physical healing. And it says here at the tail end of chapter 8 and 9, it says, Now Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, this is Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Matthew chapter 5 through 9, we have these bookend statements. On the front end of the statement, we have the statement where it says he went throughout all of Galilee, healing everybody and, and doing all kinds of miracles. At the tail end of chapter 9, it says the exact same thing. He went throughout all of Galilee, healing everybody and performing miracles. In between these two bookend statements, you've got three chapters which constitute his teaching, and you've got two chapters which, which constitute his miraculous healing. Now, I want you to flip back to chapter 7. Tail end of chapter 7... Let me get there myself. And I want you to look at verse 28. It says here in chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, a lot of people look at that passage and they're like, oh, see, the, the right way to teach is to be like, you know, full bore, gung-ho, just preach at them, right? Because this is what Scripture teaches. When you teach, you don't want to be kind of like, you know, a namby-pamby, kind of wishy-washy, kind of flip-flopping back and forth. And I agree to that to a certain extent, but that misses the point of the passage. See, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says over and over and over again, you've read in the Scriptures that it says this, but I say to you this. Now that is a radical departure from any kind of teaching. I don't even teach that way, okay? When I come in here on a Sunday morning, I don't say, yeah, 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 the Bible's all nice and good and everything, but now listen to what I'm going to tell you, okay? And the rabbis didn't teach that way either. Here we are in the first century here in Jerusalem, and the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees and all these guys that are teaching in the Scripture, the way they taught is they would ground it in the Scriptures, okay? They'd go back, this is what the Torah is saying, and they'd do all this sort of thing. Now, when Jesus is teaching... He is saying, here's what the Bible says. And he affirms that, but then he takes it to the next level. Now, all the Old Testament prophets, when they talk, they would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say. There's no need for the Lord to say, I say this. He just speaks. Now, they're amazed because he has authority. Now, all of Scripture bears reality and testimony to the fact that your suffering and your sickness, whether you're depressed, whether you struggle with depression or any kind of mental anguish, or whether you're diseased, literally, you've got some sort of, maybe it's cancer, or maybe you struggle with diabetes or any number of illnesses. Whatever your sickness is, we all know that at the end of the day, we're going to die. And Scripture overwhelmingly points to the reality whether directly or indirectly, all suffering and all sickness is the result of living in a fallen world. I love this quote from D.A. Carson. He makes this statement, the messianic age would end such grief as illnesses, sicknesses, and sorrows. Therefore, Jesus' miracles dealing with every kind of ailment not only heralds the coming of the kingdom, but shows that God has pledged himself to deal with sin at a basic level. Jesus can heal you. Now, the first century Jews understood if a man can heal you physically, and I know that my physical ailments are the result of sin, and he can heal that, he must be from God. And he probably has something to say about sin. Now, Jesus is the Messiah, and he does address our sin. We've got two elements here. There's the physical, and there's the spiritual. And the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to begin to address our hearts. If you have ever known sorrow or grief or sadness, if you've ever experienced depression, I know there are some of us here who experience depression in a capacity and a grief far beyond anything that I've ever experienced. All heartache, all hurt, all of that is rooted in this fallen and broken world that we live in. Now listen to what Christ promises here in the beginning stages of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to substitute a word. It's not how your ESV will translate it or your Bible, whatever your Bible translation that you're using this morning, but it's a valid way of looking at these verses. So I want you to read along with me. I'm going to substitute the word happy for blessed. So let's just try it one more time. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you. And this is paradoxical. We'll look at this in a few weeks' time. But just note the saying, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Jump up and say, amen, hallelujah, praise God. You're happy when people persecute you because great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you've ever known any sadness, and all of us in this room have known sadness, okay? We've all lost loved ones. We've all experienced melancholy. We've all known some form of sorrow and heartache at some point in time. So the question is, do you want to be happy? Do you? Absolutely you do. I mean, at a fundamental level, all of us want to be joyful. I mean, if you've ever been sad, you know you'd rather not, right? So do you want to be happy? Everybody says, I love Jesus. And I want to be happy. It's important when we look at this passage to hold the whole thing together. You know, we can pick out a verse here, we can pick out a verse there, we can focus on this and we can focus on that. But you need to understand that the person that is capable of making you happy is the Jesus, not just of Matthew 5 through 7, but of Matthew 8 and 9. He is the Jesus that performs crazy, wild miracles. And a lot of people look at that and they say, well, I like Jesus as a moral teacher, but this whole business about supernatural healing and all this kind of stuff, you know, I don't know about all that. You, don't, you can't separate the two. You cannot pull them apart. So people that would like Jesus as a moral teacher must come to understand he has control over everything in the universe, including the physical sicknesses in your body, which means he is God. Other people look at the miracles. and They say, woo, I like the miracles. I like the healing. I like getting better. I want to have a new resurrected body and live forever and not have any sickness and not any death. But then you start to talk to them about what brings true joy and maybe the spiritual sickness on the inside. I don't really like Jesus as a moral teacher, per se. I don't think he can really address my heart, but I want the healing. The Jesus of Scripture doesn't come one way and not the other. He comes together. And so if you want to be happy, and I pointed this out two weeks ago, I'm going to say it again. He is more concerned with your heart than with your health. Okay? Now, I want to be healthy and not be sick and dying, and I know some of us in here struggle with different sicknesses and different illnesses. The promise of Easter, which we celebrated last week, was that we will all, those of us who trust in Jesus, one day escape the pain of this world. But for now, we need to focus on our heart. What is Jesus saying about our heart? So do you want to be happy? Yes. It begins with verses 1 and 2. So let's look. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Okay, so he's traveling around Galilee. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. Everybody's clapping their hands. They're like, this is great. The getting is good up in Galilee. They're taking their sick aunt or their dying uncle. It doesn't matter. They're throwing him on a cart. They're carting him up to Galilee. Jesus is healing everybody. Everybody's getting healed. The getting is good. He sees the crowds. He's excited. He's like, all right, I'm going up on the mountain. 
Well, that's a little bit different. But again, it emphasizes the point that he has a message to teach. And again, we looked last week at 423 and 424 and 425. And Jesus' teaching is that your heart is what he's primarily interested in addressing right now. So yes, he's healing you. He sees these crowds. They're all coming. They carton all their loved ones up to Galilee. He goes up on the mountain. Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain. And look at the next phrase. It says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Right there, that's worth noting. You've got the crowd, and then you've got disciples, okay? You've got the people that are following him because they want to get healed. They want to get the supernatural, miraculous deliverance from whatever their sickness is, whatever it is that's plaguing them. That's the crowd. He goes up on the mountain to teach, and then it, makes the, it makes the distinction when he sits down, his disciples come to him. Now, if you look at the tail end there, Matthew chapter 9, if you just want to flip over with me right quick to Matthew chapter 9, it says... He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we see here that as he goes up on the mountain, here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples come to him. That isn't to mean that there aren't other crowds up here on this mountain listening to him. Obviously there are. But the scriptures is drawing a distinction between the crowd. I mean, he's healing people. He's going up on the mountain probably the whole crowd follows him up onto that mountain. But the Bible is pointing out a fundamental difference between crowd and disciple. So whatever Jesus is about to say here in Matthew chapters 5 through 9, it is going to be effective only to those people who are his disciples. So the question is, what is a disciple? And more fundamentally, you want to be happy, that's good. That's good that you want to be happy. I encourage that, and I think you should strive to be happy. But are you his disciple? What does this word mean? It comes from the Greek word mathetes, and we could get in all kinds of Greek studies and all this type of thing. Mathetes comes from the root, from a, a verb, montano. It speaks to the Greek philosophers, the guys that uh, would have philosophical teaching, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, these kinds of guys. And they would have a group of people that would follow them. The word literally means to become accustomed to or to seek to know, okay? So Jesus goes up on the mountain, he's got the crowds that are following him, and then he's got a group of people who truly are seeking to know, okay? So that's what the word means on a literal level. Now, none of us in this room really know what discipleship really is, just based on our experiences in the world around us. So what are you getting at, Josh? The word means that you become accustomed to a certain lifestyle, you seek to know something. Our education systems today don't reflect that really at all. They really don't. I mean, if you were to try and understand the word disciple based upon you're going to school and learning math and learning algebra and then coming home and doing homework or going to university and studying a particular course, that would actually miss the heartbeat of what this word is. See, I think this is actually problematic in a lot of our churches. I think that when we come to church, we come looking for a lesson, looking for a, a good story, maybe some kind of academic facts, like I'm sure some of us in this room right now are like, ooh, disciple, root word, mathetes from the root, Montano, cool, I'm going to write that down, you know, so I can sound smart next time I'm talking to my friend about, you know, what it means to be a disciple. But just let me explain it to you like this. To know about something is not the same as knowing something. 
I can sit here, and I'm not like, you know, master carpenter or anything like that, okay? But I can sit here and I can give you an extended discourse, riveting, fascinating discussion on the use of a hammer and a nail. Last Sunday, you noticed the beautiful cross we had up here with all those nails. Uh, You know, I whacked all those nails into that cross and made it look all pretty, right? And a lot of you are laughing at me because I was like the next day complaining about how, oh, my arm is hurting because I was doing this all night long. I can tell you how to use a hammer. I can sit here and say, okay, you got a steel head. It weighs about five ounces. The flat end is the, hand, the end that you use to whack the nail with. The little curvy kind of clawed end. If you mess up and you bend the nail, that's the end you use to pull the nail out. I can say, okay, you want to raise it above your, you know, raise your arm above your head and drive the nail down. I can, go, I can give you a really long, I mean, I could take 20, 30 minutes and give you a really fascinating, in-depth, like the best lecture you've ever heard on driving a nail, okay? And I think that sometimes when we come to church, that's what we're looking for. A 30 to 45 minute awesome lecture about Jesus. But at the end of the day, you need to know, knowing about driving a nail into a piece of wood, you don't know anything about driving a nail into a piece of wood. If you want to know how to drive a nail into a piece of wood, you're going to actually have to pick up the hammer, kind of feel the weight of it in your hand, in your arm. You're going to have to actually pick up the nail. You're going to have to put the nail on the board Ooh, I'm going to whack my thumb. You're going to have to embrace the fear of possibly smashing your thumb. Embrace that. And then try to drive that nail. Okay? That's how you know how to drive a nail. Knowing about something is not the same as knowing something. And it extends into our relationships as well. For example, when my wife and I started dating, on our first date, we had like, you know, 101 questions night, you know, where we don't really know each other. You know, it's our first date. I'm secretly hoping she'll agree to a second date. And so, like, she's asking me questions, and I'm, like, trying to microanalyze the, the tone and the inflection and all of this sort of thing. And I, I want to give a good response, you know, to make her happy. And then at the same time, I'm asking her questions, you know, like, because we're still, we're trying to, do we want to, you know, is this a solid match? Do we go together, right? Okay, so let's just say we do 101 questions. And we did. We sat down at a subway shop. We did 101 questions. It was a lovely time. Now, the next morning, Saturday morning, do I know Shanti? I know a lot about Shanti, but I don't really know Shanti. Shanti tells me, I like bugs. Most of the girls in the room are like, what? That's different. Well, my wife is really into insects. She loves bugs. We have an amazing bug collection. She tells me, I love bugs. I kind of process that. Okay, okay, this girl loves bugs, you know. On our second date, we're walking down the sidewalk. There's a very rare beetle that kind of scurries across our path as we're walking and talking having a good time my wife dives after this thing like i'm trying to capture it and and i'm like i thought she tripped and like maybe broke her toe or something i didn't really i mean we're just talking what she's out there i'm like oh are you okay she's like i'm like what are we doing and she's all like trying to like kind of peek through her thumbs you know trying to open her hands up ever so ever so slowly trying to get a look at this thing to see what kind of bug it is so she can identify it and, you know, classify it and taxify it and take it home and pin it and all this other kind of crazy stuff, right? Now, when my wife says, I love bugs, okay? But when my, we weren't, we weren't married at the time, but when, you know, my, the woman that would become my wife dives on the sidewalk and just goes flying after an insect, then I begin to know, Okay? I've, I've been told, and I, I have some sort of an understanding intellectually, 
But to be walking, and this still happens to this day. We've been married 10 years, so we're walking, you know, holding hands, doing the whole cute couple thing. There she goes. And, and this, most recently down here on Victoria Street. And, uh, you know, everybody's kind of like, and I'm like, it's okay. Calm down. I know what this is all about. You know, like, it's all right. She's, she's going after something, right? Now, I know that, and nobody else knows that. We're down there on Victoria. She goes diving. People are immediately looking to help her up or they think something's wrong and it's normal course of the day for the clay camps, you know. We're just going to be going after insects wherever we find them. So um, it's all right, you know. But if you don't know us, you wouldn't know that. But I can tell you, oh, my wife loves insects. And you're like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, all right, I know. But you don't really, you don't really know it until you see us walking down Victoria and she goes after it, right? It's the same with Jesus. It's the same with what happens here on Sunday morning. I can tell you about him, and I do every week. And you know a little something about him, but you don't know him. You don't know him. To be a disciple, to follow after Jesus, it's going to require an understanding between knowing about him versus following him. Three weeks, four weeks ago, I think, we were looking at Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is calling the disciples. He doesn't say, hey, come sit down for a really good lecture. They're in their boats. They're working away. They're pawing in fish. They're working in their family, their family business there, catching fish. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I got some interesting information. Take about 30, 45 minutes. He doesn't say that. He says, follow me. Now, guys, listen. I want you to be happy. More than anything in this world, I want you to know joy. I want you to know happiness. I want the cravings of your soul to be satisfied in Him. Because nothing else will satisfy. You can chase after new car, new clothes, the great career, the perfect family, 2.5 kids, dog, picket fence, the whole nine yards. You won't be happy at any of that. It will satisfy for a time, but eventually it will wear off. But if you really want to be happy, then you have to come to Christ. If you really want to be happy, it's not going to happen here, 30, 45 minute sermon on a Sunday. To be happy, to be blessed, to have all of the things that are talked about here in this book, it will require not just kind of this thing where we sit down and I tell you some interesting information. You're like, oh, that's a taste from Montano, root word. You're going to have to follow Jesus. He, and it's going to require a beginning. Like, you don't just sort of kind of, oh, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to you know, kind of follow Jesus or whatever. You're going to have to choose. Because one thing I've learned after chasing after Christ for the whole time that I've been a disciple there began a, there was a moment in time in which I began. Like I was kind of just going to church. My parents are taking me to church. I've kind of just been doing this thing. It's kind of how I was raised. But there is a definitive moment in the exact same way that you're driving a nail. You have to choose. You have to decide. You have to, there comes a specific moment in time in which you pick up the nail and you pick up the hammer and you begin 
to follow Jesus. It's not something that you just sort of take kind of as it comes. You have to choose. To follow Jesus, to go after Christ, you have to begin. That moment of beginning has to occur. You have to, at some point in time, make a decision. Jesus says, follow me. He goes up onto this mountain. The crowds are coming. And yet the scriptures see a distinction between the crowds and the disciples who are following Jesus. The crowds are there for a great show. They want to get the healing. But the disciples are following. And for every person in this room, you're going to have to decide. It isn't enough that you just kind of show up on a Sunday morning. It isn't enough that you even go to life group on a Tuesday or Thursday or a Monday night or whatever. We got things going on every night of the week for different people. It does not, that is not enough. You have to come to a point to where you choose to follow Jesus. If you want to know happiness, if you want to know blessing, you're going to have to make a choice. And in that choice, when you choose, that's when the scriptures see a difference between the disciple and the crowds. Until you choose and before you choose, you're just a part of the crowd. You're just a part of the group that's interested, that's kind of following after Christ. But when you choose, when he says, follow me, and you say, I am going to follow you in the exact same way that there's a definitive moment in which you pick up a nail and a hammer and you make the choice to actually learn how to drive a nail. You've heard Clay Camp give all kinds of wonderful, illuminating, fascinating discussions on the topic. Now you're like, okay, I want to actually try this thing. In that moment, you go from being a person that just shows up on a Sunday to following Jesus. In that moment, you go from being just a guy that's here, just a girl that's here, to actually becoming a disciple. In that moment, you go from the crowd to a follower. And that's where you need to be. If you want the happiness, if you want the spiritual and the physical healing, you've got to follow Jesus. Following Jesus separates you from the group in this capacity. You'll notice the last verse 2. He says he opened his mouth, so his disciples, they come to him. The disciples make the choice. They're going to follow. They've picked up the nail. They've made the decision. They step out. They separate from the crowd. They're different from the rest of the group. They are following Jesus. And then it says in verse 2, he opened his mouth. And the ESV, in this particular case, and I love the ESV, but in this particular case, not the best rendering. ESV reads, he opened his mouth and taught them. NAS has it better. This is an, this is an imperfect verb. So it's actually the, the focus of the verb is on something that begins in past time with no termination. So it's an action that begins but never ends, okay? And so the best way to render this verse here would be the New American Standard, which says his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach. So when you choose to follow Jesus, if it's just today, then I don't think you really understand the choice that you're making. If you're just going to go to church today or you're just going to go to life group this week or maybe this week for the next five days or so you'll read your Bible and then Tuesday comes you're like, ah, yeah. If you really want to know happiness, if you really want to know joy, and I want that for you, I want you to have happiness and he wants you to have happiness. But if you want it, you're going to have to follow him and it's not just today and tomorrow and maybe Wednesday. It's following him. He's going to begin something in you. He's going to begin to teach you. He's going to begin to opening your mind. And it's going to take time. That's the process that he uses. 
I want you to be happy. Jesus wants you to be happy. But you have to make a beginning and you have to understand that it's just a beginning. You have to make a choice and you've got to count the cost. You've got to understand that we're starting something here today. The word teaching is interesting. A lot of people, like I said before, you come to the scriptures and it says, Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach them. Okay? Now, again, based on our experience of the current education system, we go to university, we sit in a classroom, we sleep through about an hour lecture, we ask our friend, hey, you got the notes from last, you know, Monday's lecture because, you know, the test is coming. Then you cram the night before, then you get this little piece of paper, and, you know, you kind of hope to do good on it, and then, you know, you get like, you know, maybe a 50 or 60. You're just hoping to pass, really. That's our understanding of teaching. Jesus' understanding is that he becomes a bridge. The word here, teach, to teach. You have to understand that the, the teacher, who Jesus is, is he, be, he is looking at himself as though he is like a bridge. He himself becomes the passageway from where you are to where he wants you to go. And I'm using the bridge to try to help illustrate this for you. For example, when you're driving downtown and you make the choice, you want to go across the river, well, how are you going to get across the river? You're going to take the bridge. You're going to pull over onto the, the exit for the Halston there, and you're going to go across. Now, as you're driving across the bridge, let's just say you decide, oh, I don't want to go to the other side. Well, what are you going to do? You're on the bridge. Like, you're going to pull a Yui on the bridge? I mean, you can try, and I'm sure some have, uh, and that doesn't work out too well. What ends up happening is if you pull a, a Yui, you're going to get into a car wreck. You're going to, you know, best case scenario, all kinds of traffic issues, right? But at the end of the day, when you follow Jesus, when you make that commitment to following Jesus, this word teach, what it, it is referencing, and this is an awesome, awesome understanding, it has its basic elemental meaning in the idea that as a teacher, he becomes a bridge. In other words, by accustoming your life, by discipling yourself to follow Jesus, to make that beginning, he himself becomes the thing that will transport you to where it is he is wanting you to go. Now, on the beginning level of that, you've got to be in agreement. Nobody crosses a bridge to somewhere they don't want to go to. Okay? Nobody does that. If you want to go to where happiness is, you've got to decide that Jesus is legit, that Jesus is the one that can take you to where you want to go. You've got to agree with that. And then as you come to him, as you make that beginning, as you step out on that path following him, you need to understand that bridge goes one way. It only goes one direction. And as soon as you step on that bridge, there's no turning back. There's no getting halfway across and saying, oh, maybe not. If you're going to follow Jesus, when you step onto that bridge, he's going to hold you. And his grace is going to work in your life. And it's not to say that you're going to follow step, 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 step perfectly all the way across that bridge. Most of us don't. I myself have not. You get about halfway, you look back at the world behind you, you lose your focus, and you chase after things that you shouldn't. You stop, create a traffic jam behind you. The ramifications of your choice echo out into the people around you. You hurt people. People are saddened by the choices you've made. There are all kinds of consequences there. But you don't step off the bridge. You've stopped pursuing to the other side where happiness is. But Jesus doesn't let you go. When you choose 
to begin with Christ. When you truly surrender and step onto that bridge, when you make that choice, it presupposes that you agree you want to go to where Jesus is. And if you agree that you want to go to where Jesus is leading and you step onto the bridge that is Christ, there's no turning back. He's going to take you to the other side. Now you can stop, like I said, you can try to pull a Yui and create all kinds of problems and all kinds of havoc. But Jesus is going to hold you if you truly surrender to him. If you truly say, I want to go where Jesus is. You truly place your heart into his hands. And you give your life to him. You step on that bridge. Immediately you've stepped out from the world behind you. You've stepped out from the crowd behind you. You've stepped onto the bridge. Your world is different now. For every step you take, you get a little bit further from the life you left behind. But the moment you step on that bridge, when you look back at the world around you, you now see it from the perspective of the bridge. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. If you really want to be a disciple, if you really want to follow Christ, you really want to go to the other side where happiness is. You have to agree that he can take you there. You have to surrender. You have to step onto the bridge. And you've got to walk to the other side. People say, Josh, this sounds an awful lot like you've got a lot of things you've got to do. Like you've got a lot of work you've got to do. As soon as you step onto the bridge, friend, you're there in his kingdom. You've left the other side, and now you're crossing the divide. He's already saved you. But yet, at the same time, he calls upon all of us to follow. Through our following, that is the process that he uses to shape and to mold our hearts. I hear all the time, I want to be happy. I want to have joy. I just wish all these problems would go away. And the question is, tell me about your quiet time. Tell me about what you're reading in the scriptures. What did he speak to you this morning? Oh, it's been so long. Do you see the cause and effect there? Over and over and over again. If you don't hear anything else, hear this this morning. I want you to be happy. Jesus wants you to be happy. When you step on that bridge, don't create a traffic jam. Recklessly abandon the world behind you and be a follower after Jesus. Here in Matthew chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach. If you want to know Jesus, you have to follow him. When you start to follow him, it's like when you begin to nail a hammer, uh, nail a nail with a hammer. First time you do it, for some of us, last Friday was our first time to drive a nail into a piece of wood. You know, we're like, tap, 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 tap. And and then some of us were like, bam! My father could drive a three-inch penny nail with one swing. Just, he'd tap it once to get it in the wood, and he just, bam, it was done. I never mastered that level of, of hammering. But it didn't happen to him overnight either. It takes practice. 
takes following. It takes skill. It takes doing it over and over and over again. To follow Christ will take discipline. It will take following. But the truth is, if you do that, there's joy at the other end of the line. You walk away from the world behind you, you step onto the bridge, you follow him, and at the far end of it all, there is joy in Christ. There is happiness in Christ. So we've got a couple of choices we've got to make. I mean, this is really the nuts and the bolts of it here. Do you want to be happy? Yes. Okay. Decision time. You came in here this morning thinking you were going to hear about Jesus. And now I'm challenging you to know him. So here it is. Here's the decision that you have to make today. Will you follow him? Will you step away from the crowds? Will you leave the world behind? You can only make this choice as an individual. So you're going to have to have some courage here, some surrender, some willingness to embrace the unknown. You're going to have to step away from the world, step away from the crowd, step away from everything you've ever known, everything that you were ever comfortable with, knowing that it didn't really bring you happiness. And you've got to risk something. Risking what you know, which you know won't bring you happiness, for something that the scriptures are promising will bring you happiness, which is following, that is knowing Jesus. And it's more than just coming on a Sunday morning and hearing Josh say some fancy Greek words and thinking that's cool. It's going to require that when you leave here on a Sunday afternoon, you're going to take what you know from the word of God to be true, and you're going to try to live that out in your life. You're going to try to put it into practice. There is no reason for any of you to come back next week when we jump into the Beatitudes. There is no reason for any of you to show up until December or January when we're done with this section if all you're interested in is the cool Jesus that can perform miracles. If you want to see something sensational, beginning January 2013, we'll be looking at some sensational stuff. But if you want happiness, if you want joy, if you think it's worth your time to hear what Christ is saying about happiness and joy... Don't come back next week unless you're willing to decide today to pick up the nail, to pick up the hammer, and to drive it home. That's a tough choice. It's a tough decision. It's not one that you should take lightly. Because when you step on the bridge, you've got to trust in Jesus. Say, Josh, I hear you talking about all that, but what does that really look like? We have some visitors here today, and I don't know any of you really all that well. Let me just explain it to you. We've all sinned. We've all done wrong. None of us is perfect. We've all made mistakes. A lot of us think, well, what that really means is I just need to do better. I just need to try harder. You can't. You, you cannot be good enough for God. You will never be good enough for God. See, he's holy. He is pure. It's like if you have a 100% pure gold bar, and you introduce just 0.00001% of imperfection into that pure gold bar, that totally destroys the value of that pure gold bar. Now, Jesus wants you to come into his kingdom, to be with him. You're an imperfect person. He is a perfectly perfect, holy, righteous God. He wants to make you perfect. It's going to take time. It's going to take a whole lot of effort on his part and yours. But he can embrace you into his kingdom today if you will trust what he did for you on the cross. And what I mean by that is 
for every sin we've ever committed, for every crime, every act of treason we've committed against the holy God of the universe. The scriptures teach that there has to be a punishment. In the same way that if someone were to come to you and murder your child, you would want to see justice done. Scriptures say God has to do justice. And the bad news is that justice that has to happen has to happen to you if you've ever sinned, which we've all sinned. Oh, that's great news, Josh. I know, I'm sorry, I threw us all under the bus, but that's the truth of it. I mean, if you had cancer, you would want me to tell you you have cancer and you're dying. You wouldn't want me to lie to you and be like, no, you're fine, that lump hanging out of your neck, it's nothing. Like, you wouldn't want that, would you? Of course not. So we're all deserving of God's justice. You don't have to pay the price you owe. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the price that you have to pay so that you don't have to pay it. He died so that you could be set free. That's what all of last weekend was about. Everybody's running around chasing this Easter bunny and dying eggs and eating chocolate and all that's great. But the true meaning of it all is that there was a man who died on a cross so that you would not have to. This is the man who wants to bring you happiness. This is the man who wants to set you free. You want to step onto that bridge. It means stepping away from the world and everything you've ever known, stepping away from your own self-efforts, trying to be better, chasing after things you think will make you happy, but if you're really willing to be honest with yourself, you know that it won't make you happy. You can't fix what's wrong because, not to put it too harshly, but the truth is you're a part of a problem. But Jesus will pay the price on the cross, forgive you of your sins, and if you will by trusting what he did on the cross and changing your mind, we use the word repentance, but literally what it means is changing your mind about walking in the world, you will step onto the bridge. I promise you, there is nothing but joy at the other end. So you have a decision to make. Do you want to step onto the bridge? Do you want to be happy? In 1 Kings 18, don't flip there, just listen. There was a prophet named Elijah and they were having a huge struggle trying to choose as a country between two different gods. There was the one true God, and then there was this kind of fake God called Baal. And it says in 1 Kings 18, it says, How long will you, Elijah, speaking to the, to the people, he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. There are a lot of choices to be made, but the time to decide is now. You can say, I'll put the decision off till tomorrow, and you can, but don't. This is why. The bridge brings happiness the moment you step onto it. If you say, I'll put the decision off till tomorrow, really all you're doing is delaying your own pleasure. All you're doing is delaying your own joy in Jesus Christ. All you're doing is delaying the solution to everything that's been wrong with you. <laughs> All you're doing is hurting yourself. But also, you need to know that time doesn't last forever. It's kind of like saying, I'd like to take a plane to Atlanta, but I'm still thinking about it. Well, listen, guys, the plane's going to leave sooner or later. And you can delay and delay and delay. And sooner or later, that plane is going to take off without you. So I don't know how long you have. But I know this, there's really no reason to delay. 
Because Jesus wants to make you happy today. So, are we going to limp between two different opinions or are we going to choose? I pray that you will choose and that you'll be here next week and that you'll begin to know Jesus. Not just know about him, but know him. Because there's a lot of joy. I can know about Shanti liking bugs, but it's fun just to walk with her in the same way that I can know about Jesus, but there's so much joy in walking with him. I pray you'll choose Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you. We thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you, God, that you do want to bring joy and happiness into our lives, Lord. I pray that we would find it in you and only in you. God, I know that we have a lot of visitors here today, Lord, and I know that you have held court among your people today. You have spoken to us through your word. I just pray, Father, that you would continue to speak, God. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to to work in our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are any here, and, and I don't know that there are, but there might be, if there are any here, Lord, who have not trusted in you and have not tried to pursue what brings true happiness, I just pray, God, you'd encourage them, Lord. We love these people. And I know you love them because you died for them. God, we praise you and we thank you that you just loved us unconditionally beyond all understanding. And Father, I just pray, God, that you continue to work in our hearts. That you continue to mold us and shape us and save us from depression, from what makes us sad. I love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own, because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.